Please turn with me this morning to Isaiah chapter 29 as we jump back into the book of Isaiah. It's been a few weeks. And today we're going to be looking at the first eight verses of chapter 29. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer again. And let's ask for his help with this text this morning. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come here to your word, many times, even as I've read this book several times, I still find it strange. And many times as we come to passages we've seen hundreds of times, we find them strange. And a lot of it has to do with our own sin, our own unwillingness to follow your word, to see you for who you are. And so, Lord, we pray that you would convict us of that sin this morning from your words, that you would show us the truth about who you are, about who we are, and how we ought to act. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as I read through this passage, the first few verses really struck me. They're kind of strange, and we'll get more into that as we talk about this, but it reminded me of this little town in Pennsylvania called Centralia. I guess that's how they pronounce it there. I don't know. That's how I'm going to pronounce it. And that little town has been on fire for over 50 years. It's probably not what you thought I was going to say about Centralia. It sits on the top of a coal mine. And like 50 years ago, they were burning some, like a pile of trash or something, and it accidentally started this fire, and it just never really went out. And it's burning under the city. And so there are places that you can just see smoke billowing out all the time for 50 years. You can't even really fathom. And there's no timetable as to when it's going to go out either. It's just going to burn for a long time. The city's never really been that big throughout its history. It peaked at around 2,000. However, it only has five remaining residents now. The entire city has been condemned and kind of taken over by the government. And these five people are allowed to finish out their lives there in this small town. And after when they die, no one's going to be allowed to live there until the fire finally goes out, whenever that's going to be. In our text today, we're going to see this same kind of idea. Not a city that's on fire, but a fire that is unquenchable. A fire that cannot be put out and should not be put out. And it's the fire that the people of God were told to keep burning no matter what. Fire is a symbol throughout Scripture. And it's a symbol of several things. It's a symbol of justice and judgment. But it's also a symbol of purification and redemption which seem to be on opposite ends of the spectrum from one another. So when I thought of the city in Pennsylvania, I thought, surely there's no way that this ever-burning fire here in Pennsylvania could be viewed at all in a redemptive light. The people of Jerusalem must have thought the same thing when they were living in the days of Assyrian rule, when Assyria was rolling throughout the countryside, destroying everything in sight, and Jerusalem was kind of the last thing left standing and Assyria was coming to them next as this kind of 
unquenchable fire at the gate, so to speak. However, as we read this text, the fire that was at their gate wasn't Assyria at all, but the all-consuming fire of himself, the Lord of hosts. And so as we look at this text, we'll look at the idea of fire being used as both judgment and redemption. And I think both are featured prominently here, so consider two main ideas. The fire of judgment and then the fire of redemption. And so with that, look together with me at the text, Isaiah chapter 29, starting at verse 1. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Isaiah 29, starting at verse 1. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around, and I will besiege you with towers. And I will raise siege works against you and you will be brought low from the earth. You shall speak and from the dust, your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost and from the dust, your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you'll be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and with great noise, noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. And when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating, and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking, and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Isaiah, so just a quick review and catch up. The empire of Assyria has laid siege to all the surrounding nations. We really went through them one by one as we've been walking through this book. And even the northern kingdom, the the kingdom of Samaria, was taken over where the ten tribes of Israel were. And now those ten tribes are called the lost tribes. Judah... And the southern kingdom was to be next. And the, the king of Assyria at this time was went by the name of Sennacherib. And he was the one that was going to stage this kind of invasion. And he did so by burning all the surrounding villages. And then finally laying siege to Jerusalem proper. And that is a siege that would ultimately fail. Assyria would be thrown back. In a very sudden way. And we will talk more about that as we go through this book. And so as we look at the text today, we see a picture of that siege happening. Though it isn't readily clear from the text, the city of Jerusalem is the subject. We're going to talk about 
why it's not readily clear in a second. But what is clear, however, is the same pattern that we've seen throughout the book where judgment is closely coupled with salvation and redemption. Over the years, as people have studied the book of Isaiah, this has been a problem for many that call themselves critical scholars. And they said there's no way that one person could have written all these things. There's just no way that they could have done this because they don't seem to make any sense to us. And so we're going to come up with this other idea. We're going to say that there's multiple Isaiahs. There's one of them that preached judgment. And another one came along later and said, you know what, this book seems really kind of mean. So he added some redemption into the mean parts. And current number, I think, for Isaiah's is three. But there's a smattering of other contributors as well. And the main idea behind this is the people don't like what the book says. They don't like the picture of God that is painted here. So they try to make it not altogether right. Because we need to worship a God that we completely understand. Of course, all of that's nonsense. There's one Isaiah who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the God of the Bible is capable of both judgment and redemption. And he's capable of delivering both of those things to the same people. Those people that he has called from the foundations of the earth. Further... The ideas of judgment and redemption really aren't too far apart from one another. Because redemption requires that something was wrong in the first place. And the wrong thing, of course, in the scriptures from page one to page end is our sin, which we deserve judgment for. So the idea that God would both judge and redeem is not all that far fetched would probably help those scholars to read a book, you know, like the Gospel of John, where Jesus talks about both things quite a bit. And so in this text, we will have both on full display as we do throughout this entire book. So for the first point, we have the fire of judgment. Look there at verse 1. All Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Ariel is an interesting word here. Its meaning has been debated throughout the years. There is little question, really, that the, ver- that the word has to do with the city of Jerusalem because you get the idea as you read through this that it's a city where David encamped. And, and in verse 8, this is they're bringing the fight against Mount Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem. And so we get the idea that it is Jerusalem. Some believe that the word Ariel means lion of God which would kind of make sense because of Judah. Others have said it's maybe an an alternate spelling for the book or for the city of Jerusalem. But I think the explanation that fits the context the best is the idea that the word Ariel means the altar hearth. And if you think about the altar of God and the temple of God, it's the there's this place and on the altar is placed lots of different sorts of animals and the purpose that they're put there is not only to sacrifice them but to burn them and so this portion of the altar called the altar hearth is a place on the altar where there is to be a continuous fire the fire was to be burning all the time 
so that it could take up any offering at any moment. There's a commandment in the book of Leviticus in chapter 6 that the fire should not ever go out. That the people of Israel were to keep the fire burning. It was one of the jobs of the priests to put wood on the fire each day. And so you have a very visual picture then of the purpose of that altar. Always consuming the sacrifice. Casting judgment on the sacrifice. And thus then bringing redemption forward for the people. This fire was both a blessing and a curse for the people of Israel. In our call to worship this morning, we see a picture of the altar and what, and what comes to the altar. Little birds come to the altar and find it as a place of rest and even a home. Yet throughout the rest of scripture, as you read about the altar and as you read about the fire upon the altar, this fire that never goes out, that the Lord himself is a consuming fire. Jesus speaks of a place too where a fire never goes out. A place of an unquenchable fire where the worm never dies. This is how he says it in Mark chapter 9. And so when you look at this first part of Isaiah 29, this idea starts to make a little bit of sense. The people of God, year after year, Add year to year, let the feasts run their round. You get the idea of these feasts and the ceremonies, the offerings, the sacrifices that the people made to the Lord and the fire never went out. The Lord even calls this by name when he says that the people of Jerusalem will become an altar hearth to him. There in verse 2, I will distress Ariel. There shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be like an Ariel. She will be, Israel will be, that place of unquenchable fire. And to anyone watching, if you were there historically and you were seeing what was taking place, there was this massive army at the gates of Jerusalem laying siege to it. But here in Scripture, we see what's actually taking place. Verse 2. I will distress Ariel. Verse 3. I will encamp against you all around. And I will besiege you. And I will raise siege works against you. It is the Lord himself that is laying siege to his own city. Lest we think some autonomous entity is attacking the people of God and God is powerless to do anything about it. Or that God has simply allowed these people to attack, to teach his own people a lesson. No, God is using Assyria to lay siege himself. If he wanted to, of course, he could simply remove Israel from all existence with just a thought. And they would never be anything again. Because we know that God is a consuming fire. He's totally capable of completely consuming them so much so that they would no longer exist. Yet, he does not consume. But he burns, nonetheless, with a judgment against his people. 
And why the judgment? It's the same as always. Judah made the things of the world important. Even the religious things. Good things. And they forgot who those things pointed to. Judah even took pride in their religion. They used it as a way to kind of hold their heads high when being around the other nations. Look at us. We are the people of God. See these ceremonies that we do. See these sacrifices. See this altar that never stops burning. Yeah, that's us. Look how important we are. Yet all the while, they forgot that none of it was really about them. It was about the God that they all pointed to. And so they were brought low, verse 4 tells us, in their judgment. So low that their speech is relegated to the whispers that come from the ground. So how do we look at this today? What does this have to do with the church today in 2019? Because we don't have any sacrifices or ever-burning altars. I can't even imagine the responsibility of keeping a fire going constantly. Instead, we have replaced those things, of course, with other things that we have placed in front of God rather than have God himself. And just like the sacrifices and altars of the Old Testament, they aren't bad things. In fact, they are necessary things many times. If you go back through Exodus and Leviticus, those things were commanded of the people to have these altars and to have these sacrifices. They were absolutely good things, just like the things that we would attempt to make gods ourselves. Sometimes they're good things. I could name a bunch and we could talk about them. I'll name one because it seems to be something that people think about more often than not, particularly when it comes to churches. And it's the idea of worship and particularly worship music. I see this a lot when I see like Facebook ads for churches and things. They tend to have their music set as if you were attending a concert on Sunday. Music's an important part of worship. And it's not a particular kind of worship music. It's just the whole modern worship experience altogether. One church might have a particular style, and that style is fine. There's nothing wrong with one style or another. And people might really get into the worship, and there's nothing wrong at all with totally being engaged in the act of worship and music. Nothing at all wrong with that. One or two people might even raise their hands as a kind of emotional response to the music. Fantastic. I think that's great that our emotions would be involved in our worship. Absolutely. And then they might start to look around at the people who aren't raising their hands or at the people that are, who don't have an emotional response or who do, who don't like that style of music or who think it's the only good thing and think, hmm, They must not be worshiping as good as me. They must not be into this at all. Careful if you think I'm talking about another church. It could just as easily be us. It could be some of you. It can be worship style. It can be holiday observance. It could be communion frequency. Whether or not a church preaches through books of the Bible, like we do, or topically, like other people do, Anything that would take our eyes off of Jesus and make us think that we've somehow arrived without him. Satan wants nothing more than us for to think that we are the model church. 
He wants nothing more to, for us to think that we are model Christians or that I am the model pastor so that we can take our eyes off Jesus and we can place them square on ourselves. He wants nothing more than that. And if you think God is okay with that, reread the first four verses of this passage again. He encamps against those who would take his place. His plans are to burn them up forever, unceasing, unending, unconsuming. And in Christ, of course, those of us in Christ, we will not experience this type of judgment for all eternity. But if you think that he won't discipline his own children, you need to read the New Testament. You can look at instances in my own life where the Lord has pressed hard against me, not consuming me, thankfully, but stripping me down to where I was little more than a whisper coming from the dust. It's happened. And he does that with the sole purpose of bringing us back up, of bringing us redemption in our lives. And we see that here in our text today. And so that brings me to the next point, the fire of redemption. Verses 5 and 6. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and with great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and a flame of devouring fire. There is a sudden shift in this passage. You go from these scenes of judgment where this nation is pressed against the gates of Jerusalem, really just there acting because the Lord is the one pressed against the gates. But now the Lord comes and wipes those nations away as if they were small dust to make sure that we understand that it's not just dust, but it's small dust because they're nothing compared to the Lord. The one bringing judgment is now the one bringing redemption. The foes will be like dust, like the chaff that blows in the wind. Why are they like this? Because the Lord shows up. And I love what he's bringing with him. He has his own host. His own host is thunder and lightning and wind and earthquakes. And so I want us to think about this for a moment because we oftentimes kind of just read these things in Scripture and we'll say, oh yeah, when the Lord shows up, there's a lot of noise. Of course, there is. The earthly armies have only creatures at their disposal. When Assyria was counting the numbers of people that were going to be in their army, they did not count thunder and lightning among their soldiers. But when the Lord has his army, he can do whatever he wants. He has all nature at his disposal. They make the armies of the world seem like absolute nothingness. So much so that their fight, the commanders of those armies, will look up and it will be as if it never happened. Weren't we just fighting a war here? And yet it will be as if it never happened. It will be like a dream. Verse 7, And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her strongholds and distress her, shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. And he compares it to someone who's dreaming about eating food, and they wake up and they realize they weren't even eating anything. That's uh, kind of tough if you think about it. If you're that 
enemy. Kind of reminds me of the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. At one point in the book, and you've probably most of you have read it or have heard about it. From, I'm sorry if you haven't. Uh, it'll still be good. Uh, the enemy gets a hold of Aslan. Aslan seems like this unconquerable foe. Yet the enemy gets a hold of him and they're extremely excited and they, and they take him down, but instead of actually defeating him, it's as if they had done nothing at all because the place where they laid him, he was gone. He was no longer defeated because he had risen from the dead. It was like a dream to them. Of course, can, the same can be said of our own redemption, can it not? The Lord of hosts came down to earth to defeat our enemies. And there weren't any normal enemies. They were sin and death. They were the great enemies. And of course, those enemies could stand no chance against the the one redeemer of his people, Jesus Christ. But you know that isn't the whole story because if he had just simply come down to defeat those enemies, then there would still be the matter of my sin to deal with. It wasn't just him coming down and fighting something that I couldn't fight against and then he won and be like, okay, good. He had to deal with the fact that I've never once liked him. He had to deal with the fact that people throughout have turned their backs on him. Even the first people did that. If he just came down and destroyed sin and death, then there would be a ton of wrong that hadn't yet been judged. And the Lord's anger burns hot against sin. In fact, we are told several times in Scripture concerning our sin that he is a consuming fire. And we know how his burning anger was satisfied. The Lord Jesus became sin. He became the enemy of the Father. So that the Father laid siege against him. We are told later in this book, as a matter of fact, that it pleased the Father to crush him. And when the father rolled through against his enemy, he came through as a devouring fire. All of those Old Testament sacrifices that were placed upon the altar hearth onto that ever burning fire. They all pointed forward to this one final sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he died, something happened to that fire concerning my sin and the sin of all of his people, it went out. The anger that the Lord had for the people that he had set aside for himself went out. So much so that when the Lord Jesus was about to die, what did he say? It is finished. So for the the believer, that unquenchable fire is put out. The Lord Jesus paid it all. But what about for the unbeliever? It still burns. It will always burn. Because they will pay for their sin of unbelief forever. A place of unquenchable fire. Rather than face the Lord this way, if that's you today, rather than come up against Him 
as your enemy, call upon his name today and be saved. Face him today. Come to him in repentance today and receive mercy. He is faithful. All that call upon him will receive repentance and forgiveness. So in conclusion, let us in Christ be a people who understand that though this fire has been put out regarding our sin, we are still called to rely on him alone. After we are in Christ, we don't then start earning our own way. He has earned our way once and for all, so then let us live as if that is true. And then let us be faithful to that message of both judgment and redemption. They're both true. The world must hear both in order to hear the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we admit that we don't like both sides of that coin. We'd rather just talk about you as our Redeemer, not realizing that we are leaving out the reason you had to redeem us in the first place. It's because we are sinners. And so, Lord, as we go to the world with this message of hope, that it would be a message both about sin and redemption so that the people of the world could then call upon you, the only Savior, and be saved. We pray this in your name. Amen.